Uh, good morning, Evie Free. How are you guys doing? Gosh, I got to say, it's, it's so good to be here with you. Um, anytime it's a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, it, it's so good simply to gather with God's people, to worship together, to pray together, to be thankful together, to study from God's word together. You know, some of you have been here for, for 50 years and you haven't missed a Sunday in the past 50 years. For some of you, yesterday you Googled church in Fullerton and Evie Free Fullerton came up. And, and so you're here because you Googled us, but whether this is your 50th year here or this is your first time here, we're simply a group of people that are passionate about following Jesus' disciples, connecting his family, and going out into the world as missionaries. Ultimately, we, we live the life of discipleship and of family and of mission because we think this is the best possible life to live. As Jesus calls folks to follow them, he, he says it himself. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Another translation says, my purpose is to give my people a rich and satisfying life. Another version, I came that they may have and enjoy life, to have it in abundance to the full until the life overflows. A message translation says, I came so they can have real life, eternal life, more and better life than they ever could have dreamed of. It's the life of faith, the life of discipleship, the life of saying yes to Jesus is a yes to life. It's a, it's a life lived God's way for God's purposes, but we find in the middle of that it's the best possible life to live. As much as, as, much as it's the best and the most satisfying, it, it doesn't mean that it's the easiest. It doesn't mean that it's filled with rainbows and unicorns. In fact, Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will face persecution, but I promise you that it's worth it. It's worth all of it. So oftentimes, we gather together as a local church, not just to be thankful, not just to study. We, we come here to be changed. We come here to be transformed because we know the life of discipleship is a life of change. It's a life of reorienting our values, changing our priorities, a redirecting the way that we're currently going in life. And for a lot of us, this is uncomfortable. Sometimes it can be disheartening because it's tough. But we know through the scriptures that all along the way, Jesus is with us, helping us make the changes, helping us turn the corners. It's why as a staff, uh, we're currently in a series talking about uh, one of the most uh, tricky places to reorient our lives. And it's in the area of generosity. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Aaron Curry did a phenomenal job talking about being generous with our time. That our time isn't ultimately ours, but that it's God's given to us to serve God and to serve people. Eddie Park, just a little bit ago, talked about being generous with our talents that our talents aren't for us, but our talents are used to practice loving and serving people. These are two spaces that we want to be generous in. Uh, and this morning, we want to talk about being generous in grace. 
You know, oftentimes when we read the New Testament, we can hear the word grace quite a bit. But if we aren't careful, we don't quite have the right paradigm, the right perspective, the right understanding of what, of what grace really is. We think that if God has grace, he's stingy with it. It's difficult to get. You have to earn it. But when we have these thought patterns, we find ourselves in a thought pattern that we don't find in the scriptures. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, Paul says this. He says, in Jesus, we have redemption. We have redemption through his blood and the cross. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Not that he has sprinkled on us. Not that he has made us earn, but the grace that he has lavished on us. The grace that he has showered on us. And so this morning, we just want to take a few minutes unpacking what does this grace look like? What is a grace that is showered on us? What is a grace that is lavished on us look like? But before we begin, we want to recognize that this morning, we aren't just here for more information. We aren't here for new notes or new highlights or new underlines, but we're here to be changed. That ultimately we want to walk out of this room different in the way that we came in. So before we go any further, can we pray together? Father, we thank you for mornings like this in which we can gather together. We can gather together to be thankful, to worship, to study from your word, but Father, ultimately we want to be changed. So Father, would you help us learn just one thing about your son that won't just be information, but one thing about your son that will lead to transformation, that will walk out of here able to live differently. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Well, uh, summertime is officially upon us. How many of us are excited that it's summertime? The the, the, The kids are pumped, the parents are doomed. Uh, it's, it's the way summertime oftentimes work. Junior hires, you're getting out of summer just recently. Is that right? You guys aren't there yet. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> summertime is a great season. In, in Oklahoma, we'd get out of school in about May. And in Oklahoma, we have a thing called seasons. Uh, there's four of them. Uh, you have fall, you have winter, you have spring, and then you have summer. Uh, but part of the reason most of us live in California is because we enjoy paying the sunshine tax. Uh, We like having an endless summer. Uh, Growing up, summer was one of my favorite seasons. It it meant going to the pool. It meant uh, rides on my bicycle around the neighborhood. It meant playing basketball and football at my friends' homes. But but summer was kind of this, this long, steady, slow burn. Right, like, like you begin really excited and then it just kind of goes and goes and goes and begins to taper off. But one of the great things about summer is that it's so long. And one of the great things about summer is what happens at the end of summer. You're not bummed when summer ends because when summer ends, you enter the holiday season. And I love the holiday season. I, I, I love celebrations. I love parties. Uh, so even beginning in October, you kind of have this Halloween season. 
And then you switch to November, you have this Thanksgiving season. You make it to Christmas in December, you have the Christmas season. You have this, this short little two-week version of a New Year's season. Like, I love celebrations. I love getting together with my, with my friends, my folks, the people around me to really celebrate uh, that wonderful things are happening. But I have to be honest, there's a celebration that I'm not a huge fan of. It's birthdays. Like, I'm, I'm actually just not a good birthday person. In fact, if I can get through my birthday without anybody knowing about it, it's been a successful birthday for me. Uh, so I won't tell you when my birthday is because I want to keep it a secret. Because I actually don't want anybody celebrating my birthday. I think it has to do with the fact that I'm not a good gift giver or a good gift receiver. Uh, but the, the, the double side of that sword is because I'm not good at being aware of my own birthday, I'm actually not good at being aware of other people's birthdays. And I slip up on this all the time. In fact, uh, I'll get text messages from different uh, folks in my family. My mom will text me and say, don't forget, today's your sister's birthday. Text her. Uh, so I'll text my sister, hey, sister, happy birthday. And she'll text me back, did mom text you and remind you? Uh, you know, yeah. So, so my family just knows, like, I, I'm just not great with birthdays. I think one of the reasons I'm not great with birthdays is that it's this short 24-hour window. You've got about 24 hours to lavish all the affection, the love, the money, the gifts, the presence, and the attention on somebody. But if you miss that window, you're absolutely in the doghouse. I mean, that, that's what's tricky about birthdays. Uh, but recently, I would say probably over the last 10 years or so, uh, there's been some folks that have done some remarkable things. They've, uh, they've managed to turn the birthday into the birthday week. Uh, and if you have anybody that's turned their birthday into a birthday week, you know what I'm talking about. It extends the hours from 24 hours of celebration to about 168 hours of celebration. And as somebody that's not a big fan of birthdays, this is a nightmare for me. It's 168 hours of presence and attention and happy birthdays and affection. But here's what I love um, about birthdays uh, that are a week long is that it's 168 hours. And I have 168 hours to redeem myself because I know I'm gonna drop the ball in the first couple of days. Uh, but when I think about birthdays, they're an interesting celebration in reality. Because when we're getting together, we aren't celebrating a graduation. Uh, we aren't celebrating a success. Uh, we aren't celebrating that these people have achieved a goal. Uh, we're just celebrating that they're breathing. Like they're alive. Their heart is still beating. In fact, somebody could be in the doghouse for 364 days, but on their birthday, man, we're going to celebrate. Uh, somebody wrote this to me on the first service. Um, they said, birthdays are like participation trophies. We all get one and all we had to do was show up. I mean, that's what birthdays are. Uh, they're, they're simply the celebration of life. And so on your birthday, you get showered with gifts. You get showered with attention. You, you get showered with money and with resources and affection for no reason at all. You didn't earn any of it. It's just, it's just part of the rhythm of our life. That once a year we're celebrated just to be celebrated. Not because we've earned, deserved, or done anything. You know, when scholars talk about grace, they define it as unmerited, undeserved, 
unearned gifts, unearned, undeserved favor, unearned, undeserved attention and affection. And so this morning, we want to begin to unpack what is... What does that look like? Because sometimes that's difficult for us to really grasp. You mean grace is a celebration of me for me's sake. No, but really, what do, what do I have to do? What do I have to earn? How do, I, how do I make my actions appropriate to deserve this? But grace would say, no, it's just it's celebration for celebration's sake. Grace is celebration for life's sake. And so Jesus tells this remarkable parable in Luke chapter 15. He's talking to a whole bunch of folks, and he tells this interesting parable. Uh, He talks about a father who has two sons. And uh, typically in a story, uh, in order to learn about the the character of a certain character in the story, their disposition, uh, what they're like, you have to read into the story. But Jesus just comes out front and tells you exactly what the younger son is like. Uh, At first he says, there's a father with two sons, and the younger son goes to his father and says, Father, I'd like my inheritance right now. Now this is a a fascinating statement for a son to make, but it's more than fascinating. It's actually deeply disgraceful to the father. Uh, When you go back and you study the rabbis of the first century, uh, they would say that a father should hold on to his estate And on to the inheritance he's going to pass on to his children until his final breath. It's not until the father is passing away that he dispenses his blessing and his inheritance to his kids. But here you have a father with no signs of being too old. No signs of being sick. No signs of about to die. And the son says, Father, I want my inheritance now. In other words, the son is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I'd rather take my inheritance. I'd rather take what's rightfully mine and do what I want with it right now. And I really want nothing to do with you. In the first century, this would have been a deeply appropriate time for the father to discipline his son. When you read the Old Testament scriptures and it talks about rebellious children, there's all kinds of ways you can discipline them. You can discipline them with words with the actions of a community, with a rod, and sometimes, if it's bad enough, even with stones. We find in the passages, the father doesn't do that. But what you would expect if the father doesn't do it, you'd actually expect the older son to step in and to rebuke the younger son so that the father can save face. But Jesus' take on the parable is interesting. The, The son says, Father, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now, and I want to do what I want to do with it right now. Text says the father agrees and he divides the inheritance. And the text says, not long after this, the son takes everything that he's gathered all the shoes, all the clothing, all of the money, all of the resources and it says that he heads for a distant country. This is doubly shameful. When rabbis talk about inheritance, they say, if a father has to pass on inheritance while he's still alive, Out of honor and respect, uh, the son should keep the belongings around the father. And the father still has a say over what is done with them. But in this passage, it says the son, not long after he gets everything, he packs it all up and he begins to head for a distant country. 
He begins to leave Israel for Gentile territory. If you can imagine this scene, you can imagine the scene is filled with ice. It's filled with distance. Here is the son loading up a caravan filled with goods and resources and money and all of his clothing, and he's about to head out. You can imagine this isn't a celebratory time. Maybe the father and the son are sitting on the porch watching it happen. Maybe the older son stays on the porch and the father walks the younger son in an attempt to bless him. The son says, no, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Regardless of how it happens, the text says that this younger son, filled with pride and arrogance, takes his entire inheritance into Gentile territory, into a different country, and then he says he squanders all of it. But he doesn't squander it on goods. He doesn't squander it by, uh, by building a business. It says he squanders it on wild living. In other words, this guy took all of his stuff and he headed to the Las Vegas Strip. But he takes all of it because he's telling his father, I'm not coming back. I'm not leaving clothes here to come back to. I'm not leaving resources to come back to. I'm leaving with everything and you'll never see my face again. So the son takes his nice sandals and his fine robes and all of his goods and he leaves, but he squanders all of it. And the text says that after he squanders it, it's the worst possible time for this to have happened. It says that a famine sets in on the land and it's tough for us to understand how devastating a famine could be, but if you imagine the 2008 Great Recession, it means great need for a lot of people. It means the stock market plummets. It means people lose their jobs. They lose their homes. You have overqualified people applying for underqualified jobs. It's an absolute disaster. The text says that this younger son, he squanders everything on wild living and a famine sets in. And for the first time, he experiences need. He experiences want. For the first time, the soles of his sandals are disappearing. For the first time, his clothes are being tattered and torn. For the first time, he's experiencing hunger pains. So he knows he can't stay like this, but he left his father and his family back in Israel. And he left in such a way that he would never come back, so he begins to look for a job. You can imagine he begins in the urban area, going from business to business, from owner to owner, but there's no job to be had. And so he goes out into the villages searching to, to buy goods or to sell goods or to be a carpenter, but in the villages, there, there's no work for him. And all along the way, he's experiencing greater and greater degrees of destitution, of poverty. So finally, he, he makes it out into the fields. Maybe the fields looked a little bit like they did in Israel, except there's, there's one marked difference. It's that it's filled with pigs, as this kid was being raised by his father, he wouldn't have seen pigs in Israel. They would have made their land ceremonially unclean. It would have defiled them. In fact, to be a Jewish boy around pigs, and especially working with them, was the last place you would have ever have dreamed that you would have been. But this, this son is destitute, broken, poverty-stricken. So it says he hires himself out to work with the pigs and after the weeks pass and he continues to feed these pigs, 
with the food for pigs, the text says that he begins to crave this food for pigs. That's how hungry he is. I used to work at P.F. Chang's. Anybody go to P.F. Chang's ever? A couple of us. So I was a back waiter at P.F. Chang's. Um, as a back waiter at P.F. Chang's, it was our responsibility uh, to go and to bust the tables. And you'd be surprised at how many people leave food on their plates. I'm from Oklahoma. We didn't go to sleep until we ate all the food off our plate. And if we didn't eat all of it, my parents would say, great, it'll be here for you in the morning. And this is how it worked in Oklahoma. Uh, and so uh, we'd take the food back and we'd begin to scrape off the food into the trash cans. And I was there for about a couple months and I started to see a few employees, as they'd take it back, they'd have a dish that had you know, 75% left on it and they'd, they'd grab a fork and they'd, they'd sneak a little bite in. I'd say, what are you doing? Like, we're eating. I'm like, who raised you? Like, in Oklahoma, we weren't raised to do this. And they looked at me and they said, Austin, at some point, you'll cross the line, too. <laughs> now, now I, I, I'm thankful to say I didn't cross the line, but I understand where they're coming from. They're working in these long shifts. Their stomachs are super hungry, and they're not making a lot as a server. But, but for me, the only thing that kept me from eating this food was my own sense of self-dignity, my own sense of self-respect. When we read this passage, we find the younger son has neither of those left. It says he craves the food that the pigs are eating. But it's the other folks around him. It's the other servants around him that won't let him eat the food. So here you have this younger son completely destitute. No self-dignity left. No self-respect left. And then it just dawns on him, what am I... What am I doing here? I've hired my out as a servant to this pig farm, but the servants of my father, they eat so much better than this. I mean, my servants at my father's place, they eat so much that they have food left over. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go back to my, my, my father, but I, I can't go back. I, I, no, I need, I need to go back. And then he begins to rehearse this script so that he'll be accepted back. He begins to rehearse the script saying, when I get to my father, um, I'm gonna say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be your son, but if you'll just hire me back as a servant. And so this younger son, who has squandered all of his resources, begins to make his way back to his father. But he's coming back in a way that's wildly different from the way that he left. He left with sandals on his feet, with fine robes on his shoulders, with plenty of goods and resources and money in a caravan, and now he walks back sandalless. No doubt, a single pair of clothes. No goods or resources to his name, absolutely dirty and filthy, and he begins to walk back to his father, constantly reciting the words, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son, but if you just hire me as a servant, and you can imagine, he says, this is gonna work. So he walks closer and closer, and the estate is still a far, far distance away, but the son sees something that may have been terrifying for him. He sees his dad. He sees his dad running at him. Now, this would have been strange for a couple of reasons. One, because he's probably never seen his dad run before. Like, if, if you're like me, um, he hadn't seen his dad run before. And part of the reason for that was because to run as an old man was shameful, 
It was undignified. You would have had this, this large tunic, and in order to run, you would have had to have pulled up your tunic to run after something or somebody. You would have shown your bare legs, which would have been a shame and a disgrace. You only ran when something was deeply and wildly important. And here, this son, he doesn't see his father walking towards him. He sees his father running towards him. And the son may be filled with fear, knowing that what awaits him in the village is a ceremony. But the ceremony isn't a celebration. The ceremony is a ceremony of rejection. In fact, as a son, when you took your inheritance and you squandered it in Gentile territory, if you had to return, when you came back, a ceremony would be thrown for you. And all of the village would gather around and they would take a giant pot and they would smash it before the sun. And they would say, from this point forward, we reject you. And the son that squandered his wealth would be rejected. So the son going back knows that this is what awaits him. And when he sees his father running at him, he probably thinks this is the first stage. This is the first step. My father knows Torah. He's coming to shame me with his words. Maybe he's coming with a rod to discipline me. In a worst case scenario, he's coming with stones. And so you can imagine the younger son. As the father runs, as soon as he's in earshot distance, maybe the son falls to his knees. And he begins to yell the speech that he's rehearsed many times. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I know I'm not worthy to be your son, but if you'll just hire me as a servant. And the father continues to run towards the son. And so the son continues to shout this phrase that he's rehearsed over and over again. And when the father gets to son, he grabs the son and stands him to his feet. And the son rehearses the lines, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the father says, stop it. And begins to cover his son with kisses as he wraps his arms around his son. And the text is, it's so interesting at this point. The father doesn't look at him and say, where have you been? What'd you do with everything that I gave you? Where are your clothes? Where are your sandals? Where's the wealth that I gave to you? The father says none of that. He just looks at his son. And then he turns to his servants. He says, servants, go get the best robe for my son. And go get the family ring. Bring sandals. He doesn't have sandals on his feet. And it looks like he's dropped a couple pounds. So kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have a feast. Because my son was lost. But now he's found. He was dead, but he is alive again. You see, what the son didn't know is that as much as the son was away squandering everything on wild living, the father was waiting for the return of his son. Possibly out in the fields every single day, looking off into the horizon, waiting for his son to come home. In the evening as the sun is setting, walking the border and the boundary of his land, just waiting for his son to come back home. Possibly sitting on the porch, alone after a meal, waiting for his son to come back. See, all along, 
the father had been waiting for the return of his son. And when his son comes back, he doesn't evaluate him. He doesn't judge him. He, he doesn't give him marks for good or for bad. They simply begin to celebrate. They simply have a feast, not because he was bad and now he's good. Not because he had a habit and now he broke it. They feast and they celebrate simply because the son is alive. Simply because his heart is beating and his lungs are breathing, the family's going to celebrate. It's like a birthday. And so they begin to celebrate. And it's an interesting scene because the dutiful son, the older son is still out in the fields working. And as the sun is setting, the older son makes his way to the village and he hears the sounds of dancing. He hears the sounds of music. He says, man, I love a good party. I wonder what's going on. So he snags one of the servants. He says, what's going on? What's, what's the festival all about? And the servant says, your father's killed the fattened calf, which you only did that for the, the best and most robust of situations. And so the older son gets doubly excited. This must be a really great thing that's going on. So, 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 so why did we kill the fattened calf? What is so good that is happening that we needed to do that? The servant says, um, it's because your brother, he's back. He's been gone for a while, but your father's happy because he's safe and he's sound. He's alive. His heart is beating. His lungs are breathing. He, he's still walking. The text says that the older brother is furious absolutely furious with the father. He returns to the village and he won't even go inside where the celebration is happening. Instead, he, he stands outside of the doors and the father has to come and says, son, come inside. He says, absolutely not. Son, there, there's, there's a celebration, there's a feast. You, you need to come inside, absolutely not. The text says the father begins to plead with the son. Son, come inside. And the, the older brother erupts says, look, look at not my brother, but look at your son. He wished you were dead. He took your inheritance and he squandered it on prostitutes and wild living. And now he comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. I've been dutiful. I've been obedient. I've done everything that you've asked me to for years. And I haven't even gotten a goat to celebrate with my friends. No. The father's heartbroken because the father looks at the son and says, son, you're always with me and everything that I have is yours. But today we have to celebrate not because your brother has it all together, not because he has all of his hurts, habits, and hangups in order, but he's simply back. He was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but he's alive again. You see, the story is so interesting because it's a story about grace. It's a story about the celebration of life, about the father celebrating his sons simply because their heart is beating and their lungs are breathing. But what's interesting is both sons have a distorted view of their father. Uh, the younger son, the one that squanders everything 
on wild living, tells his father that he wishes he was dead, the most disobedient, the most disrespectful son. Uh, As he loses everything and he's completely destitute, he goes back thinking that his father isn't as good as he thinks he is. That if he's lucky, he can be a servant. But when he comes back, he finds that he's showered with gifts. He's showered with affection. He's showered with feasts and with celebration and with attention. And he hasn't earned any of it. It's simply because the younger son is precisely that, a son. But the older brother doesn't doesn't quite get it right either. Uh, he, He stands here angry with his father because he's been obedient. He's been dutiful. He's done everything his father has asked him to do, and yet he complains that he hasn't even gotten a small goat. And it's because the entire time that he's being obedient, the entire time he's being dutiful, the entire time he's doing what he's asked to do, he's not doing it from sonship. He's saying, I've earned this. I've deserved this. And the father says, you haven't earned or deserved anything. But everything that I have is yours simply because that's precisely what you are. You're mine, you're my son, you're living, and you're breathing. You see, I would imagine if we, if we surveyed the room, a couple of us fall in those two different camps. For some of us, this is the first time in a church in a long, long time. Maybe this is your first time in a church ever, and you're here because your boyfriend dragged you here, your girlfriend dragged you here, You had a rough night last night, so you Googled local churches, and this came up. For some of you, you're sitting here, and you're thinking, man, I've got a long way to go. I've got a lot of works to do. Man, if I want to get my life right, I've got a lot of earning and a lot of deserving I need to put forward. But this morning, you have to know that God is celebrating you, that God is rejoicing over you, not because you have it together, Not because everything is in its right place. God is rejoicing over you this morning because you are you and you are his son and you are his daughter. That's grace. God's celebration of you. His lavish feast over you. And for some of you, you've you've been here for 50 years and you've been dutiful. You've been obedient. You've been serving. And there's something about grace being extended to the least of us that it just rubs us the wrong way. Because they don't deserve it the way that we deserve it. They haven't worked the way that we've worked. They haven't been obedient the way that I've been obedient. And if that's you this morning, good news, God is celebrating you. But he isn't celebrating you because of your duty. He isn't celebrating you because of your obedience. He isn't celebrating you because you do everything he asks you to do. He's celebrating you because you're his son and you're his daughter. That's what's so amazing about grace. It it is God showering his attention, his gifts, his resources, his affections on the undeserving. And when we read the gospel, we find that we're all undeserving. Uh, I have a friend named Jared Anderson. He wrote a song uh, a number of years ago. Uh, and it, it, there's just these phenomenal lyrics that speak about God 
celebrating us. Uh, and, and the lyrics say, um, you dance over me, but I'm totally unaware that you are. And you sing all around me, but I never hear the sound. See, I, I think part of the revelation for us this morning is that God is celebrating us. He's dancing over us. He is singing all around us. Not because we've earned anything. And not because we've deserved it, but simply because we are his sons and daughters. That's what God does. He extends his gifts, his resources, his attention and affections towards the undeserving. And when we read the gospel accounts, we find that we're all undeserving. And so we're so thankful for his lavish grace. That's what Paul's referring to in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven and eight. Simply says, we have redemption. We have redemption by his blood and through the cross and we have the forgiveness of sins. In perfect accordance with the richness, the fullness, the abundance of God's grace which he showers and lavishes on his people. This is amazing news. Can we pray together? Father, we pause here actually a bit, um, a bit astounded by what we read. That you're, you're better than we thought that you could be. You're more gracious and you're more generous than we thought that you could be. So Holy Spirit, we ask you now that whether somebody's in this church for the first time because they had a rough night last night or someone's in here for the 50th time, we just ask you that you would give us all, across the board, every single person in this room and every single person watching online, a revelation of your grace, that you celebrate us. You celebrate us because we are alive, because our heart is beating and our lungs are breathing and that we are yours. And so, Father, we ask you for that revelation this morning and that that revelation would, it would change us and it would transform us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.